0: This is the crisis of the world. We of the colored race have no ordinary interest in the outcome. That which the German power represents today spells death to the aspirations of Negroes and all darker races for equality, freedom, and democracy. Let us not hesitate. W.E. B. Du Bois, American Civil Rights Activist. Excerpt from his editorial, The Crisis, July 1918. <music> Listener discretion advised. This episode contains racial terms and themes that are considered highly offensive today. Please note, these terms and themes are being used here in the context of the First World War era. Hey folks, welcome to the Battles of the First World War, Audio à la Demande. Episode 64, Champagne, the 93rd Division in the Fight. Audio à la Demande is how the French government would prefer we call this medium known in English as a podcast. Okay, let's start with the admin. Shoutouts. This episode, they go to Allison and Stuart, who gave a very generous gift to the podcast, and we are, as always, grateful for the support. Thank you so very much. The second part of our admin brief, listener Todd wrote in with a request. His request is to put eyes on a large volunteer World War I project currently underway that needs more volunteers. Volunteers at Zooniverse are entering data from the burial cards of U.S. servicemen and women that died during the war. The goal is to create a searchable database that can be used by ancestors, students, researchers, authors, or anyone interested in learning about our war dead. There are nearly 80,000 of these cards, so there is plenty of work to do. The first stage was completed in three days, but there is a lot more information to capture. During the First World War, The United States military suffered over 116,000 deaths. Over 63,000 fell victim to the 1918 influenza pandemic that swept the globe while over 53,000 died in combat or training accidents. These losses were incurred in less than two years, which speaks to the ferocity of the fighting that the Doughboys faced. Today, over 31,000 soldiers, sailors, Airmen and Marines rest in cemeteries in France, Belgium, and England. In addition, over 4,300 rest in unknown graves, their names recorded on the wall of the missing at the various cemeteries. Starting in 1921, families of fallen servicemen were given the difficult choice of leaving their loved ones on foreign soil to rest with their comrades, or to have their remains shipped back to the United States. By the end of 1922, roughly one third of U.S. war dead were returned home for reburial. Regardless if the dead remained in Europe or were brought home, the U.S. Army Graves Registration Service created for each a typed 4x6 card with the serviceman's information, cause of death, burial location in Europe, or when they were returned to the U.S. and delivered to their families. These cards have recently been released by the National Archives, but they are in a format that makes research difficult and time-consuming. Our goal is to have the information from each card input into a searchable database so that those who would like to learn more about U.S. casualties in World War I whether it be for their research of an ancestor, for authors working on projects, or simply for those who wish to learn more so that we may continue to honor and remember these brave men and women. So, grab a cup of coffee, log on, and help out. It's fun, and who knows, you might want to learn even more about these brave individuals. It's very easy, and there is a tutorial to guide through the data entry. Information can be found at zooniverse.org backslash projects backslash done backslash american-wwi-burial-cards. That link will be posted in the episode description notes. Join the team in creating this important database. Seeing these cards will not only teach you a bit about U.S. history, but it will likely cause you to search more deeply about the tremendous sacrifice these men and women made. All right, back to the front. And back to the home front. On the 26th of September, 1918, when the American First Army attacked into the Argonne and the Meuse it did not do so alone. As we've discussed in previous episodes, to the left of the American front, the French 4th Army under General Henri Gouraud, went over the top in the Champagne region. Their mission was to break through, clear the river and valley of all German forces, and link up with the Americans north of the Argonne Forest. Assigned and integrated inter army of Poilouze and Terrayeux were three infantry regiments of African-Americans, the 369th, the 371st, and the 372nd. These doughboys spoke English, but carried Lebel rifles. They wore American khaki uniforms on their bodies, but it was the French matte blue-gray casque Adrien that protected their heads. They were the men of the American Expeditionary Force's 93rd Division. Just like we did with the story of the Buffalo Soldiers at Bénard we have to go back to the beginning to understand why these black doughboys would end up integrated into the French Army. Just like the men of the AEF's 92nd Buffalo Division, The African-Americans of the 93rd were in France to fight for their country. They were also there, however, to continue the ongoing struggle for racial equality in their own country. The best way for African-Americans to prove their worth was to fight for their homeland. That way, many thought, their quest for equal rights and citizenship would be unassailable, for the African-American man would have sacrificed just as much as any white American man had sacrificed. Any man who was not willing to fight for his country, said a Captain marshal of the 15th New York National Guard, was not worthy to be one of its citizens. Many black leaders in the United States, W.E.B. Du Bois among them, Urged African Americans to put the struggle for civil rights aside for the moment. Du Bois himself stated in his editorial titled Close Ranks This is the crisis of the world. We of the colored race have no ordinary interest in the outcome. That which the German power represents today spells death to the aspirations of Negroes and all darker races for equality, freedom, and democracy. Let us not hesitate. There were dissenters to this wave of popular thought. Francis Grimke, a clergyman from D.C., stated that men of darker hue have no rights which white men are bound to respect, and it is this narrow, contracted, contemptible, undemocratic idea of democracy that we have been fighting to make the world safe for, if we have been fighting to make it safe for democracy at all. Still, Du Bois's message was the more popular one, and African-American men were called up for the draft, just like all the white males were. They responded in the millions, just like their white countrymen. 370,000 would be chosen for military service. Per the American Battle Monuments Commission's 1944 Summary of Operations for it, quote, The 93rd Division Provisional was organized at Camp Stewart, Virginia, in December 1917 from colored National Guard units of the states of New York, Illinois, Connecticut, Maryland, Massachusetts, Ohio, Tennessee, the District of Columbia, and from colored selective servicemen from South Carolina. The provisional designation came as the division was organized only for four infantry regiments organized into two infantry brigades. No field artillery, no support troops, nor divisional trains were organized for the division. It was understood that the regiments of the 93rd were to be trained as combat units. These four regiments at the time of the division's formation were as follows. The 15th New York National Guard, soon to be the 369th Infantry. The 8th Illinois National Guard, soon to be the 370th Infantry. The 371st Infantry made up of draftees out of North and South Carolina. The 372nd Infantry, composed of smaller National Guard battalions from the various states listed above. The 369th and the 370th came under the 185th Infantry Brigade, and the 371st and the 372nd came under the 186th. Infantry Brigade. These black doughboys faced a brutal battle against discrimination and overt racism from the beginning of the American war effort. Where did it come from? Ultimately, as with all leadership situations, it came from the top. In the decades following the Civil War, there had been some progress made in civil rights and in the general situation of African Americans. Woodrow Wilson, a progressive president of the United States raised in the former Confederacy, oversaw an increased and unabashed racism and discrimination in his administration. It was no mistake that the first motion picture film shown in the East Room of the White House was Birth of a Nation, a film glorifying the KKK. Black leaders accused Wilson of being a person who, quote, believed in democracy for humanity, but not for Mississippi, end quote. With these clear signals... Coming from the nation's very top leadership, it was small wonder African-American troops would face a wall of discrimination, persecution, and violence at nearly every step during their military service. The goal of segregationists and racists at the time was to constantly administer and reinforce the following messages to African-Americans. That they were and would always be second-class citizens in their own country, and that at any time, and for any reason, racist white men could destroy them, be it physically, economically, or emotionally. To greater or lesser degrees, this played out across the United States as the country gathered the tremendous numbers of men needed for the war. The 15th New York National Guard was denied access to joining the New York National Guard Division, then in the process of being federalized as the Army's 27th Division. The 15th New York's commander, an accomplished politician and military veteran named William Hayward, then tried to have his regiment join another New York division, the 42nd. The 42nd Division was known as the Rainbow Division, as it had been created from units all over the United States and thus represented the rainbow of regions from which its soldiers came. When asked if the 15th New York could be assigned to the 42nd, Hayward was told black was not one of the colors of the rainbow. Somehow, The 15th New York received orders to report for training at Camp Wadsworth in Spartanburg, South Carolina. This was asking for trouble. Remember, this was just barely 50 years since the end of the Civil War and the end of the Confederacy. Now, these northern black troops were being sent to the very heart of the South, where the bloody rebellion had begun. Spartanburg's mayor welcomed Colonel Hayward and his men with the following speech. They will probably expect to be treated like white men. I can say right now that they will not be treated as anything except Negroes. We shall treat them exactly as we treat our resident Negroes. This thing is like waving a red flag in the face of a bull, something that can't be done without trouble. End quote. So began tense days at Camp Wadsworth. Hayward urged his soldiers to not retaliate, and white army officers patrolled Spartanburg's streets at night. Local shops and stores outright refused to serve the black men in uniform. As ordered, the men of the 15th showed discipline and their stronger character by refraining from any sort of reaction. Uniformed soldiers, like one named Henry Johnson, were pushed into the streets by townsmen intent to show them they were not welcome. While the black men refrained from retaliating, other white soldiers of the 27th Division were also training at Spartanburg. The black men their unit had rejected had become fellow soldiers, and while blacks were told to not retaliate, The white New Yorkers had no such restrictions. They set about beating any local racists they found. Lieutenant James Reese Europe and his 369th marching band, the men who would go on to introduce France to Harlem jazz, tried to build bridges to the local population with their swinging music, and it had some positive effect. But an incident in a hotel lobby where the manager physically assaulted Drum Major Sissel for simply entering a hotel while black, brought tensions to a high boil. Black and white soldiers were ready to ransack the hotel and its owner, and it was only Reese's pulling of rank that stopped them. Hayward realized it was time to go, and now. When the hotel incident occurred, he had already shot up to Washington, D.C. to convince the War Department that his boys were ready for action in France and that they should be deployed immediately. Hearing of the tensions in South Carolina, the 15th New York marched out of Spartanburg just 12 days after it arrived. Regiments of the 27th Division lined the streets to wish them off, singing George Cohen's Over There. But it wasn't just the 15th New York that suffered. The 372nd Infantry, composed of segregated National Guard battalions and companies, saw the almost immediate removal of many of its black officers by its two racist regimental commanders. Many of these officers were dismissed as incompetent, but this claim was spurious. When the 15th New York National Guard arrived in France in January 1918, it was federalized as the 369th Infantry Regiment, part of this new division called the 93rd, whose units were still back in the U.S. being trained. The 369th arrived in France to an American expeditionary force that did not want them. Told they would be trained as combat troops, the troops found themselves as stevedores and laborers under the army's services of supply. They unloaded ships loaded with supplies, built barracks for incoming troops, and worked on roads. This was not what these men had signed up for. Back in the U.S., black leaders complained to the War Department. But General John Blackjack Pershing did not want them for his vision of an independent American army on the Western Front. This, despite his experiences of serving with the black soldiers of the 10th Cavalry and having wanted to serve specifically with that unit during the Spanish American War, and his nickname of Blackjack. Originally, it had been Nigger Jack a nasty moniker given him by the West Point cadets who hated his harsh discipline. But over time, it had changed to the far more acceptable Blackjack, a nickname Pershing liked. It appears as though Pershing bowed to the tide of intolerance. Pershing found a solution for his supposed problem. He would give the four regiments of the 93rd over to the French who were clamoring constantly for American soldiers to integrate into their units. The regiments were borrowed by the French on a temporary basis, Pershing stated, and were to be returned when the 93rd Division was formally assembled for battle under the American Army. Only, the 93rd would never be formally assembled. Its divisional staff would be broken up and assigned to other duties within the AEF. So, in sum... Pershing lied. The French were more than happy to take them, as they generally placed a high value on their own colonial African troops and, as a people, didn't have the virulent racist streak then coursing through American culture's veins. In short order, the 369th Infantry was assigned to the French 161e Division d'Infanterie, and by April the Harlem Rattlers would be under live fire in the trenches. It was the same for the other regiments, which arrived later in the spring. The 370th Infantry would be passed through the French 73rd, 10th, 34th, 36th, and 59th Divisions, and would fight in the Waz-N Offensive. As such, they do not figure into our episode on the Champagne Front, but they will not be forgotten 371st and 372nd would be assigned to the French 157th Division, known as the Red Hand Division for the red hand on its divisional flag and shoulder patch. Once settled in with the French, the Black Doughboys saw their regiments reorganized according to French army organizational tables, so they could be integrated directly into the above-named infantry divisions. These men wouldn't be attached. The 369th Infantry was now a part of the French 161st Infantry Division. It was the same with the others. The Americans retained their cocky uniforms, but they gave up all their other gear. It was the matte blue-gray Casc Adrien helmet that would protect their heads. This didn't bother the men too much. But the exchange of the American M1903 Springfield rifle for the French Lebel rifle very much did. Marksmanship obviously was, and remains, a huge part of an infantryman's skills and General Pershing had stressed that he wanted his soldiers extremely proficient in using their rifles. The men of the 93rd Division had reached that level of proficiency with the Springfield rifle, which fired a .30-06 bullet from a five-round stripper clip. Now, they were issued the French model 1886 Lebel rifle, which fired an 8 millimeter bullet from an 8-round tube magazine that was cumbersome to reload. The two rifles operated differently. The American Springfield rifle was adapted for open maneuver warfare where highly trained marksmen would deliver devastating fire on enemy troop formations. This was what the men of the 93rd and the AEF at large had been trained for. The Labelle had the eight round tube magazine but was meant to be fired as a single shot breech loader until the enemy closed in. Then the eight rounds in the tube would be expended to wipe out the incoming infantry attack. These were two very different methods of attack, and of course, the Americans hadn't been originally trained with the label. To compound it all, since the onset of trench warfare, the French had focused more on everything around the rifle. Pistols and grenades for trench raids, and machine guns and artillery for breaking up major attacks there would be some desperately fast learning there for sure. Following the arrival, and well after the 370th, 371st, and 372nd had been given over to the French, the discrimination continued. The 370th Infantry saw its black commanding colonel, Franklin Dennison, relieved for health reasons that were more than likely a cover the 371st Infantry's regimental intelligence officer, one Lieutenant Ernest Samuelson, would release a memo to local French military leaders that they should observe American practices and that, quote, undue social mixing of these colored and white races be circumspectly prevented, quote. The 372nd Infantry under a Colonel Herschel Toops, saw its black officers segregated from white officers upon arrival in France, and then the removal of most of those young black officers with efficiency boards that conveniently found them to be incompetent. After three of those officers were later arrested for some supposed insubordination, French officers attached to the 372nd, were appalled and, quote, could not understand why Americans should treat one another so harshly and cruelly when it was momentarily expected that the division would be plunged into battle, end quote. It was all meant to constantly demean and diminish black troops, and in particular, black officers. But the real damning evidence was a memorandum distributed to French Army officers then serving with the Black Doughboys. Titled, Secret Information Concerning the Black American Troops, this directive had been issued by a French Colonel Lennard to explain the position that African Americans were to be reminded of even when they served with the French Army. The directive could not possibly have been written without General Pershing's knowledge. In May of 1919, the whole of the secret memo was published for the world to see in W.E.B. Du Bois' newspaper, The Crisis, and it will be read here in full. To the French military mission, stationed with the American Army, August 7, 1918. Secret Information Concerning the Black American Troops. It is important for French officers who have been called upon to exercise command over black American troops, or to live in close contact with them, to have an exact idea of the position occupied by Negroes in the United States. The information set forth in the following communication ought to be given to these officers, and it is to their interest to have these matters known and widely disseminated. It will devolve likewise on the French military authorities through the medium of the civil authorities to give information on this subject to the French population residing in the cantonments occupied by American colored troops. 1. The American attitude upon the Negro question may seem a matter for discussion to many French minds, but we French are not in our province if we undertake to discuss what some call prejudice. Recognize that American opinion is unanimous on the color question and does not admit of any discussion. The increasing number of Negroes in the United States, about 15 million, would create for the white race in the republic a menace of degeneracy were it not that an impassable gulf has been made between them. As this danger does not exist for the French race, the French public has become accustomed to treating the Negro with familiarity and indulgence. This indulgence and this familiarity are matters of grievous concern to the Americans. They consider them an affront to their national policy. They are afraid that contact with the French will inspire in black Americans aspirations which to them, the whites... Appear intolerable. It is of the utmost importance that every effort be made to avoid profoundly estranging American opinion. Although a citizen of the United States, the black man is regarded by the white American as an inferior being with whom relations of business or service only are possible. The black is constantly being censured for his want of intelligence and discretion, his lack of civic and professional conscience, and his tendency toward undue familiarity. The vices of the Negro are a constant menace to the American who has to repress them sternly. For instance, the black American troops in France have, by themselves, given rise to as many complaints for attempted rape as all the rest of the army. And yet, the black American soldiers sent us have been the choicest with respect to physique and morals, for the number disqualified at the time of mobilization was enormous. Conclusion 1. We must prevent the rise of any pronounced degree of intimacy between French officers and black officers. We may be courteous, And amiable with these last, but we cannot deal with them on the same plane as with the white American officers without deeply wounding the latter. We must not eat with them, must not shake hands, or seek to talk or meet with them outside of the requirements of military service. Two, we must not commend too highly the black American troops, particularly in the presence of white Americans. It is all right to recognize their good qualities and their services, but only in moderate terms strictly in keeping with the truth. 3. Make a point of keeping the native cantonment population from spoiling the Negroes. White Americans become greatly incensed at any public expression of intimacy between white women with black men. They have recently uttered violent protests against a picture in the Vie Parisienne entitled The Child of the Desert, which shows a white woman in a cabinet particulier with a Negro. Familiarity on the part of white women with black men is, furthermore, a source of profound regret to our experienced colonials who see in it an overweening menace to the prestige of the white race military authority cannot intervene directly in this question but it can through the civil authorities exercise some influence on the population signed linard this was what the men of the 93rd division faced as they fought and bled and died in the trenches if this was not a clear representation of the systemic racism then coursing through American society and culture, then nothing could be. All the zombie lies were present. The remarks about inferior beings, the accusation of lower intelligence due to skin color, and the ever-present fear-mongering that black troops had uncontrollable sexual urges and were a danger to any woman present. 370,000 men who had gone into the military to serve their country just the same as their white brethren faced this near-insurmountable wall of naked racism. Yet, they continued to serve, and to serve faithfully for the country they believed in. By September of 1918, the 369th, 371st, and 372nd, were all on front-line duty in the Argonne and Meuse sectors of the front. They were then shifted over to the French 4th Army in the Champagne region to the west for the upcoming offensives. And they fought, as we shall see in our next episode. Questions, comments, or concerns? Please don't hesitate to contact me at VerdunPodcast at gmail.com. Get at me on Twitter at, at WW1 Podcast. Check out the BFWWP website, FirstWorldWarPodcast.com, for some photos. And check out the Battles of the First World War podcast page on the Facebook. Thank you so much for listening. Talk to you again soon. Take care.